Hello, everyone, and welcome to Sample Size, the only news podcast that cares about science. I'm your host, Samantha Spears. And I'm your other host, Wildcard Cameron. Yes, I keep forgetting to do this. Samantha, there is news this week. What is it? <laughs> Today, we're going to be talking about more coronavirus news. Yes, and this this was quite an episode for you to wrangle, if I recall, because based on, first of all, everything happening with the election and then also just everything happening with the virus, there was so much stuff happening so quickly. It was hard for us to get this up to speed last week, so we wound up having to do a lot of last minute digging. <laughs> yes, news was updating so quickly last week that I was just like, all right, we're 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 just going to wait a little bit. And now we can have a full episode with the stories no longer updating. All right. So let's do this coronavirus. Get back into this. Let's go. All right. We're going to start out on a bit of a grim note because on Monday, November 9th, the U.S. hit a grim milestone of having 10 million reported cases of COVID-19, according to John Hopkins University data. Globally, there have been more than 50 million cases recorded, with the U.S., India, Brazil, and Russia composing more than half of the cases. Unfortunately, this means the pandemic has hit a second wave, where numerous countries are seeing a rise in cases and are tightening social restrictions. And unfortunately, the U.S. is again leading the world in cases and setting records. Like on November 8th, the U.S. recorded over 100,000 new cases and 453 new deaths, marking the fifth highest day of new cases in the U.S. since the pandemic began. And hospitalizations are on the rise, with 16 states reporting record high hospitalizations and 22 states reporting at least one record high day of hospitalizations in November. So, man, this was a bummer to hear, especially on the U.S. side, because of all of the scientific leadership saying this is going to happen. We need to take this seriously now or you're going to see another wave that's going to get. I, I think Anthony Fauci literally said we could get to 100,000 daily cases and no one took him seriously. They thought it was hyperbole. And then it happened. And all he could do is say, I told you so, man. Yeah, it's unfortunate that what Fauci predicted is happening. And a lot of scientists predicted this. We've been told pretty much since the pandemic started that we would be hitting a second wave come fall. And it has happened, unfortunately. Yeah, it's weird to think about. But despite all the people who have gotten sick and also, unfortunately, all the people who have died, a lot of people still haven't gotten sick, which means that a lot of people can still get sick. We can still see more record-breaking numbers at this rate. Oh, yes, exactly. And that is a weird segue into something else I wanted to mention. Sweden has also had a surge in cases, and they've actually announced tighter lockdown measures because of it. And I mention this, Cameron, because you and our listeners may not remember, but Sweden got a lot of fame early in the pandemic for not having strict lockdown guidelines and instead relied on voluntary guidance to curb the spread of COVID. And the belief was that Sweden would have a high level of immunity and thus cases would be low. But unfortunately, the high number of cases in their first wave seems to not be protecting them from the second wave. Yeah, this goes back to that entire episode we did about herd immunity and how it just really doesn't work like that. We really would need a vaccine for some sort of meaningful herd immunity to be able to happen. Yeah, Sweden is experiencing a surge in daily cases, hospitalizations, and deaths right now. So where do we go from here with this COVID news? Well, this actually brings us into the main story of this episode because there was a new announcement from Pfizer on their COVID-19 vaccine. Very cool. So how is that going? And can I be safe from the disease? Well, on Monday, September 9th, 
Pfizer released interim results of their phase three trial of their vaccine, and the results show that the vaccine is 90 percent effective. That's really good. That's like, okay. I admit I am not an epidemiologist. I'm not a pathologist, but a 90 percent effective rate. Isn't that better than most flu vaccines? Yes, that is better than most flu vaccines. So a 90 percent effective rate means that it'll protect like nine out of 10 people from getting COVID. And what you probably recall, the minimum rate to get approved by the FDA is 50 percent. So this is much higher than expected. Yeah, that's really, really good. That means that, okay, let me make sure I remember this. 90 percent means that of, let's say we gave it to 100 people, 90 percent of them, if exposed to the virus, would not present any sort of symptoms or be contagious or actually get the virus in a life-threatening way. That is the idea. Yes. Okay. These numbers matter. And that was all phase three, right? Like this is like, all right, time to start rolling it out to people. Yes. Pfizer right now, they're in their phase three trial along with Moderna and AstraZeneca. We it was an earlier episode. I think we covered all this stuff. Oh, yeah. Many earlier episodes. This this podcast has a history now. <laughs> I can I can point to that. <laughs> we do. We can be like and tune into that past episode to hear yes. about that. <laughs> Every time I get quiet, I feel like I'm channeling my inner Frasier. <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> my, my inner Kelsey Grammer trying to be like, and uh, if you go back to our show archive, you'll find all the examples of how we already told you so. <laughs> all right. Well, scientists and world leaders were cautiously optimistic about this news. And I just want to remind everyone, these are interim results. So they have not gone through peer review or been published yet. Something that doesn't happen until the end of the trial. But it's understandable why everyone is excited about this news. This is just more than we expected. Yeah, this is way more, not just in terms of effectiveness, but also just in the speed with which it happened. Exactly. Like Pfizer thinks they'll have gathered the required safety data by the third week of November to end up getting approval. And then if they do get this speedy licensing, that could mean that this could be out to like frontline workers by the end of the year. Even if they got it out as quickly as possible, what does that actually mean for us as individuals? Like when would we expect to start seeing stuff like this? That is a great question. But actually, I think I want to save that till the end of the episode, if you don't mind. I'll put that in my back pocket. So next, I want to talk about what does this vaccine effectiveness really mean? How did they get this? And where do we go from here in terms of what to look forward to next? Okay, so we're going to need to know more about the sample size. <sighs> yes, yes, Cameron, we're going to be talking about sample sizes. <laughs> Thanks, Scott. Thanks for editing this episode. <laughs> no. Okay, so yeah, let's get it going. So about the sample size, the phase three trial has involved more than 43,000 people, half of which are given the vaccine and the other half given a placebo alternative like the meningitis vaccine. And the vaccine is given in two shots about three weeks apart. So how they calculated the effectiveness rate is that they actually looked at how many people got infected with COVID-19 from everyone in the study. How they calculated the effectiveness rate is that they actually looked at how many got infected with COVID-19 from everyone in the study. Vaccine effectiveness, it is a formula. It's actually one minus the relative risk. Relative risk in this case is of those who got vaccinated, the proportion of those that got the disease, divided by of those who did not get the vaccine, the proportion of those who got the disease. So you're saying, if I'm understanding this right, 
The top is everyone who got vaccinated but still got the disease over all the people who didn't get vaccinated and got the disease. But proportions, so relative to to those populations. Yeah, and the proportions are important because it's not actually the same number of people, right? Like you might not have exactly the same number of people who are in the vaccine group versus the exact same number who were in the unvaccinated group. Yes. In clinical trials, you try to make those even groups, but obviously that doesn't always happen. There could be a difference in numbers. In the study so far, 94 people have become infected, but the majority of those people were in the placebo group. And that is how the vaccine effectiveness is 90 percent. Okay, that's really promising. So that's saying a lot. That's saying that my likelihood of getting the disease is going to drop by a lot once I get the vaccine that they're promising. Your risk of getting the disease once you get the vaccine will drop. Yes. Cool. So where do we go from here? Well, before I move on, I want to mention that to confirm this efficacy rate, Pfizer says it will continue the study until there are at least 164 COVID-19 cases overall. And as I understand it, there were a lot of vaccines that America was funding. Was this one of them? Actually, no, this was not one of them. Thank you for bringing that up because some Trump administration officials gotten a little bit of hot water for saying that. Really? This was a fortunate segue that I did not plan at all. (laughs) Let me read you this tweet by Mike Pence, the current VP. Huge news. Thanks to the public-private partnership forged by President at Real Donald Trump at Pfizer announced its coronavirus vaccine trial is effective, preventing infection in 90 percent of its volunteers. Yes. So because of that tweet, Pfizer's senior VP then quickly denied ever taking money from Operation Warp Speed. Do they say it on Twitter? They may have. I just don't know. I was going to say, if you don't say it on Twitter, it didn't happen. (laughs) So the Pfizer trial did not get any funding from Operation Warp Speed. BioNTech, which is partnered with Pfizer, they were given aid, but from Germany, not the U.S., Germany actually gave them $445 million in September to accelerate manufacturing and development capacity. Now, the U.S. has committed to buying the vaccine conditional on it getting FDA approval. Like in July, the Trump administration agreed to pay almost $2 billion for 100 million doses. And I do want to point out Operation Warp Speed has helped fund other vaccines like the one that's being developed by Moderna. So part of me is actually wondering if maybe some Trump administration officials kind of forgot which vaccines they were funding. Like, I could see that happening in government. That's still good to know that, first of all, there is a vaccine out there, but also there's other vaccines coming. Yes, exactly. And actually, I think this is a good point when I go over some important caveats about this news. So first, these are just preliminary results, so they have not been through peer review or government review yet, and they still don't have final results on side effects. Pfizer and BioNTech have reported so far no serious side effects from the vaccine. Right now, they've only noted mild pain at the injection site and a mild to moderate fever in the few days after the injection. And while that is very promising, we still don't know for certain that other side effects won't appear before the trial ends. I feel like compared to the alternative, which is getting the disease and getting violently sick and having all sorts of other problems happen, that's still pretty good. Oh, yeah. And actually, Pfizer is planning on following study participants for two years after the clinical trial in order to monitor for any new side effects. Yeah, that's the hardest thing about this kind of thing is there's a lot of stuff that can go wrong much later that we don't know about right now. At the same time, it's that weighing the risk of 
we really need to get something done so that at the very least, the people who are doing their best to help cure other people, people like everyone who works as a doctor or the people who run your grocery store and help make sure that you can still have food in this trying time are able to be protected. Yes, exactly. And then also a thing to figure out is just how long the vaccine will last. We just don't know because it's too early to tell. One of BioNTech's founders, Professor Sahin, has said that if they found that immunity was reduced significantly after a year, then giving a booster vaccine shouldn't be too complicated. So that's also kind of good news. Yeah. If I recall, you even mentioned that isn't this supposed to be a two-shot vaccine? Yes. So that means that it probably wouldn't be unlikely that any future need to boost the vaccine would just come down to an extra injection. Yes, that is the idea. Cool. So what does this mean, I guess, for governments and all sorts of other people trying to actually get the vaccine? Yeah. So, I mean, let's say that everything we're seeing now with the vaccine still holds up by the end of the study trial and that it gets FDA approval by the end of the year. Well, there are still hurdles countries have to go through, the first being having to work out how the vaccine is going to be distributed. I don't understand. So is that trying to figure out who it's going to or how to get it to them or both? Mostly how to get it to them. So Pfizer has already started manufacturing the vaccine to prepare for distribution, and they expect to supply up to 50 million vaccine doses globally in 2020 and up to 1.3 billion doses in 2021. But that's a weird number because like we just mentioned, you actually need two doses to be vaccinated. So even though you have 50 million doses, that's only 25 million vaccinations. Yes, that's actually a good point. Also, the vaccines have to be kept at a very cold temperature. Pfizer said it needs to be kept at negative 70 degrees Celsius, which also makes distribution more complicated. Yeah, that's way colder than like even your normal freezer. Like that is special medical grade cold. Yes, very cold. A little backstory. I actually have like looked into a lot of stuff about supply chains around the world, <laughs> partly for my work, partly for my own curiosities. And there are big swaths of, you know, Asia, parts of Europe and a lot of Africa and South America where I imagine this is going to be a real problem, A, because it's just hard to get it to that storage temperature mm -hmm. in general. Like that fundamentally is not part of like how we typically do supply chains. But on top of that, especially in Africa, there's a lot of places where you're just on roads. There's not maybe trains or airports or lots of the typical infrastructure you expect really hinders the ability to get this vaccine where it needs to go if it needs to be kept at that temperature. Yes, you're completely right. And beyond distribution concerns, countries also have to decide what groups of people get the vaccine first and in what order. So both the U.S. and U.K. have mentioned emergency workers will be first in line to get the vaccine and then maybe high risk groups like the elderly after that. But countries still need to come up with concrete plans on who gets it first and then how to get the vaccine out to them. Yeah, that sounds like a really country-specific problem. Like, I imagine you're going to want to do it as a product of risk. So definitely the people who are most likely to come into contact with it, like doctors, are going to be those people who, like, they're definitely going to see it because if you get COVID, you're going to the hospital. You're going to see a doctor. Mm -hmm. But then if you don't know you have COVID and you're walking around, the other people you're most likely to interact with are frontline workers like people in grocery stores, people who are at your pharmacy, people who are parts of places you still need to go to as a product of this. So maybe if you're just an office worker who can do most of their stuff working from home, it might be longer till you and I, podcasters and 
office workers and people like us <laughs> actually get a chance at this particular vaccine or maybe any vaccine just because we really need to make sure the most high risk people are handled first. Yeah. And the U.S. in particular is going to have a kind of unique other issue to tackle in just making sure everyone can afford the vaccine and if it's going to be subsidized or not or free. Like, I actually don't know the logistics of that yet. Yeah, the the financial part's its own crazy thing. And that, I imagine, is going to be impossible for us to answer right now, not just because of our own weird healthcare system, but also new president means a whole new ballgame. Yes, I'm sure that has not been decided or ironed out the details yet. So obviously we, the public, do not know those details yet. All right. Anything else we should keep in mind going forward? Yes, actually. I think the third hurdle that countries will have to overcome when it comes to getting people vaccinated, making sure people will actually want to get the vaccine. So anti-vaccine sentiment Like it was around before the pandemic began, and that most likely has not gone away. Plus, there has been increased misinformation about the vaccine and the pandemic in general being spread around social media. So that's just going to be a hurdle to convince people that, yes, the vaccine is safe and you need to get it. I think this is definitely one of those hurdles that there's no way we can speak to this. This just comes down to how well the government can make it clear that this vaccine is effective and safe. And even then, there's some people you might just not be able to convince. Oh, yeah. And I know social media companies like Facebook and Twitter, they're trying their best to like increase tagging and labeling of misinformation and spreading of false coronavirus facts. But that system isn't perfect. It sounds like till then, we're still going to be definitely washing our hands, wearing masks and trying to stay six feet apart. Yes. Until that time, we're going to keep up with social distancing measures, keep up with the mask wearing. Also, real quick to round up, one of the founders of BioNTech, who's they're the company that partnered with Pfizer with this vaccine, they've even mentioned that they don't really expect everything being solved. I'm using air quotes till the end of 2021. So I think even once the vaccine gets released, it's just still going to take some time. Yeah, it's weird to be happy that they're being cautious while being optimistic, but it still makes me wonder about the other vaccine trials. Yes. So the other vaccine trials, interim results from them are actually expected this month or in early December, like particularly the Oxford University AstraZeneca vaccine. Cool. So I guess this is the part where I have to ask that most important question. Sounds like you referenced a lot of really interesting and meaningful stuff in the show. Where where can I find all those incredible references? (laughs) As always, you can find all my references in the show notes. Awesome. And you can find us on social media at Sample Size Show. And if you like this episode, and I assume you did because you listened this far, Please leave us any feedback on iTunes so that other people can find us and also just so we can hear from you. Ideally, five stars. (laughs) And a big shout out to Scott for making us sound great as always. His info is in the show notes, right, Sam? Yes. Thank you, Scott. All right, everyone. Be safe and see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.